0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper.
1: And I am the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie?
0: I'm good, you?
1: I'm great. And I'll be even greater if you go to usefulidiots.substack.com, where you can sign up for all kinds of bonus content, including our Thursday throwdown, where we give you your exclusive dose of midweek media madness, all the clips that we can't make fun of, On Monday morning, because they happen afterwards, we make fun of on Thursday in the Thursday throwdown. And also, you can get access to the Absurd Arena, which is where you can join our comment board and interact with us and other useful idiots.
0: And we respond. Very exciting stuff.
1: Yeah, and we'll respond right now, actually, with some questions from the Absurd Arena.
0: Wilson, what do we got?
1: So we have two useful idiots asking very similar questions, and this seemed to be a big theme after election night. First, we got Joel Ullman saying... Are there any races with significant third-party candidates? We had only one Libertarian and one Independent and one Green running on my ballot. If none of these political parties can mount a full-blown ticket anywhere, let alone nationally, how are we ever going to stop, outflank, the corporate Democrats and these party insider hack Republicans? And then, along with that, Dave F. asked, Every week you show us just how much Democrats and Republicans suck. Is it even possible for the working class to flush both of these parties down the drain? Seriously, from where I'm sitting, democracy for the working class has been non-existent for decades. Well, in terms of independent candidates, the example that stuck out to me in this cycle was Matthew Ho. Yeah,
0: friend of show, Matthew Ho. Friend of show,
1: U.S. Army veteran and uh, ran for Senate in North Carolina um, on the Green Party ticket, I believe. And you, you covered this where basically the Democratic Party put in a lot of effort to make it very difficult for him to run.
0: Yeah, they did. They tried to get him out multiple ways, sneaky ways, to try to make it so he couldn't run. But he prevailed. He persisted. And he did get to uh, take part in this election. He didn't yes. win, not surprisingly. He but- didn't win,
1: no, no. no. But uh, it's he he's just an example of how even when people decide to not go through the two-party system, that you try to go independent and they'll make it very difficult for right. you. To- right. Which sure is mind. why
0: you have so many people who are leftists who go through the two-party system.
1: Yeah. In terms of the races, were there significant third-party candidates? I mean, I'm sure there were. Matthew Ho was, is the one I paid most attention yeah. to because I, I admire him a lot. And I know it was very difficult for him to even get on the ballot because of the right uh, hurdles was, uh, from the Democrats. But I'm sure there were in many places.
0: There were a bunch of libertarians also.
1: Libertarians, yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, And in terms of uh, getting the working class to, you know, democracy for the working class, guys, I wish I had the answer. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon.
1: It's very difficult when the unions are under constant assault. Efforts to unionize are constantly sabotaged and you have uh, a White House, whether it's under Democrat or Republican, although it's better for unions if it's under a Democrat. Uh, that is just not very supportive of the union movement. I mean, Joe Biden right. claims to be pro-union and pro-working class, but what has he actually done?
0: Right, nothing union? would fundamentally change, as he promised. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the NLRB under him is, is better than it would be under a Republican, but yeah, it's still... And, the, and you know, we, you have the problem also that unions become so institutionalized and part of the Democratic Party that they don't really, uh, like, fight for the rights of their um, workers the way they should and could yeah because they're hamstrung by the democrats
1: and, and democrats have basically lost interest in the working class over the last 40 right. years under jimmy carter basically they decided meh we don't really need them anymore and wanted to be the pardon the party of uh suburbanites and right. more affluent people and you know it's working well for them right now i mean we just saw in this election that democrats despite all the predictions of a huge loss or red wave it didn't happen And I think they're blessed in having the Republicans as their opposition because Republicans are arguably more enthusiastic even about serving the corporate elite than Democrats are, which is tough to top. Right,
0: which is saying a lot, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. but in, in all these situations, it's the working class that gets left behind.
0: And and this, another quick question from our um, absurd arena comes from Nam, who asks, genuinely wondering if Dems will continue this save democracy narrative post midterms. What do you think, Aaron?
1: Uh, yes, I do think they will because they've invested so much in it. All they've talked about for two years is January 6th. Democracy was on the ballot. That's what their message was in these midterms. And uh, just like they've clung to blaming Russia for everything for the last six years, I don't think they'll give their whole, you know, save our democracy narrative. Uh, okay. Very,
0: yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the absurd arena. Thanks, guys.
1: So what do we have for Democrats suck?
0: OK, so for Democrats suck, uh, I have a story about beloved Joe Manchin, West Virginia senator, of course. Uh, he has said that Congress needs to deal with the nation's, quote unquote, crippling debt by making changes to shore up Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs, he says are going bankrupt. And this is kind of a, a, fav- a favorite boogeyman. Uh, people cons- Republicans like to say this too that it's uh, that changes have to be made because there are going to be problems. Uh, that these programs are going to run out of money. That's not actually true, though. Um, but they do like to say that in order to justify cutting those benefits. So he wants it to be uh, under, basically, he wants to do that thing that a lot of Democrats accuse Republicans of doing, which is looking at these entitlements and perhaps uh, limiting some of them. He says, we cannot live with this crippling debt if we can't come to grips of how we face the financial challenge this country has, and we're all going to be paying a price that we can't afford. So this is something that Rick Scott says, um, Ron Johnson, those Republicans, they also say this, And it's just funny because Democrats were kind of running against that. And then it turns out it's something one of their own Democrats wants to do also. So that's Manchin. That's your Democrats suck.
1: Yeah. Always.
0: He he always provides us with stuff. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. So for Republicans suck, this was supposed to be a red wave, but it wasn't. And that's because Republicans suck. And so here is the uh, head, the nominal head of the Republican Party. Still, it's his party, Donald Trump, talking about right before the election, uh, what would happen in case things didn't turn out so well for his party.
0: You've endorsed more than 330 candidates this election cycle. Uh, Tonight, win or lose, the results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump?
2: Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit, and if they lose, I should not be blamed at
0: all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite uh when they win i think they're going to do very well i'll probably be given very little credit even though in many cases i told people
2: to run and they ran and they turned out to be very good candidates you know they've turned out to be very good candidates uh, but usually what would happen is uh, when they do well i won't be given any credit and if they do badly they will blame everything in me so i'm prepared for anything but we'll
0: defend ourselves
1: <laughs> so I can't tell if he's kidding a little bit there, being a little facetious. I don't know. but
0: I don't really think so.
1: I don't think so. And uh, he thinks he deserves all the credit if they win and none, none of the blame if they lose. Well, he did handpick some key candidates, uh, especially Herschel Walker in Georgia, who turned out to be a disaster. And but the, this is uh, although Lindsey... he
0: could he could still win. We don't know.
1: It's true. He could still win. But um, it's true. That is going go is... to a runoff. It's true. It's headed to run off. You're right. Well, yeah. listen, if Herschel Walker wins and Donald Trump is vindicated, I will apologize to
0: Trump. Right. We'll have to give him full credit. Yeah.
1: Yes. But this is Lindsey Graham talking about Donald Trump's eye for talent.
0: Remember Kavanaugh?
2: Yes. You stood up for him. Well, I did,
0: ma'am. And you know why I stood up for Brett Kavanaugh? I've known him for 25 years. He's a good man.
2: And they tried to ruin his life because they want power. Yes. Yes. They tried to get him to quit because they wanted the seat. Brett didn't quit. Donald Trump stood with Brett Kavanaugh.
0: They have pots and pans. Maybe the best eye for talent in American politics is Donald Trump. He picked Herschel out of our crowd.
1: So that was Lindsey Graham speaking at a rally for Herschel Walker, saying that Trump may have the best eye for political talent in the country. I don't know how you can say that at a rally for Herschel Walker, Given what a terrible candidate uh, Walker is, but look, it's true. Uh, Trump might not cost the Republican Party too much if Herschel Walker can win the right. runoff in Georgia. But you I know mean, where
0: you couldn't say that though. You could not have said that at a rally for Mehmet Oz.
1: Sure, right. Oz he did lose. Oz did lose to Fetterman in Pennsylvania. And look, but it's true. You can't blame it all on Trump. It's also, it's also a fact the Republicans even though they had a historic, historic opportunity here, they're facing off against uh, the president's party where generally the opposition party does well. And also inflation's at a 40 year high. So this is a huge moment for them. But the, their problem was on top of having some bad, you know, Trump back candidates, they also had no message. All they said was inflation is high, but what were they going to do actually to nothing. solve it? They had nothing. And I think that combination of Trump's, the, the Trump's, Stigma and his bad choices, but also Republicans lack of a message really cost them what what should have been a red way for them.
0: Right. It's like a red puddle.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that's our damn suck. Republicans suck. Let's move on to. Isn't that weird? And I want to give credit to Echo DeLupi, who gave us this uh, this story on Twitter. Uh, so this is a very weird story. Indeed. Uh, it's a snake bite story. It's a deadly story, but it takes it takes an interesting turn. Let's just say there's a little bit of a turn of the table. So Cobra dies after being bitten by eight year old boy known only as Deepak. The child was attacked by the snake in the remote village of Pandarpad in central Chhattisgarh region on Monday So this little boy was playing in the backyard of his house and a snake wrapped itself around his hand, sinking its sharp fangs into his skin. And this little boy tried to shake it off, but he couldn't. So what did he do? He very resourcefully bit the snake.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: Yeah. He said, as the reptile did not budge when I tried to shake it off, I bit it hard twice. It all happened in a flash. And, uh. Yeah, the snake died. Now, luckily, this boy didn't. He was rushed to the hospital, and he he survived.
1: Well, that is quite uh, the brave young boy. Yeah, biting a snake and yeah. coming okay—that's uh, yeah, yeah.
0: I'll show you snake. I'll take your bite and raise it.
1: Yes, that's impressive. I will not want to mess with that kid in his school if I was to see him in the uh, schoolyard.
0: Definitely not.
1: Yeah yeah he's a, he's a permanent badass for life right there is, that's, yeah that's it yeah yeah He got a
0: snake tattoo
1: really yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: it well, makes me a little sad because it turns out they think it was a dry bite which is when a snake bites you without its venom so i kind of feel bad for the the, the snake because it wasn't yeah. quite kill or be killed but he didn't yeah. know that and he was hurting him and maybe he could have squeezed him to death so it's fair all all's fair all's fair yeah
1: All right. So if isn't that terrible, uh, check out what the U.S. military just did in Syria. You know, the U.S., we don't really talk about it, but the U.S. is occupying one third of Syria. No one really has a good reason why. The official reason is that we're there to fight ISIS, even though the U.S. is actually not fighting ISIS. And its allied Kurdish forces are also barely fighting ISIS. Most of the fighting of ISIS is being done by the Syrian government. But anyway, the U.S. is there to do things like this, which is uh, draw... A penis in the sky, uh, and this is the headline: U.S. Air Force KC-135 aircraft draws sky penis near Syria's Tartus, Russia's naval facility in the Mediterranean. So, Ukraine and Russia are, you know, in the midst of a proxy war in Ukraine right now. Uh, but the U.S. is uh, finding other ways to uh, defeat the Russians by drawing a penis in the sky.
0: Yeah, Wilson, I'm I'm sorry. We're gonna have to resee that. You're gonna have to sh- flash that penis again. Yeah, it really is quite penile. For those of you who aren't, um, who are just listening and not watching, it's a penis root. I mean, it has two loops for the testes and um, has the rest of it. And it even almost looks like a urethra or a ureter. I can't remember the difference.
1: They did a very thorough job. Very thorough job. Yeah. Drawing that sky penis. Yeah. And I don't know how much, how many millions of dollars that flight cost taxpayers, but. Hey, that's worth it. Right, everybody? Worth it, yeah. Oh, yeah. We showed yeah. the Russians.
0: It would be very ironic if uh, we went to a nuclear war and it was all over a penis. A dick. Basically, a dick pic in the sky is what it is.
1: There's a Stevie Wonder song called uh, Ribbon in the Sky.
0: Mm.
1: A ribbon in the Sky for our love. That's the that's the chorus. And so this is the sky penis in the,
0: penis sky. In the sky.
1: Penis yeah. in the sky. Yeah. Well, good job to the U.S. military. Yeah,
0: seriously. Pulling that off. All right. So those are four basic food groups. And we have a very special guest coming up now on the show, none other than Norman Finkelstein.
1: Yes, Norman is a scholar and author, and his brand new book coming up very soon is called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It.
0: Welcome, Norman. So excited to have you back on.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I've always happened to be on the Katie and Aaron show, or Aaron and Katie. I don't know, I don't know which is... Definitely
0: more- Katie and Aaron, <laughs> if we're going to be calling it that. Yeah, this is Useful Idiots, but we love having you on this show and, of course, on the Katie Helper Show. And let's just start talking about the biggest news, uh, which is the midterms. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts, reflections on that?
2: Well, I do have a reflection. I always like to admit to my fallibility. I did think it would be much worse because of the inflation. Uh, the inflation is so out of control, and so, in my opinion, underplayed in the news. For an ordinary person like myself, who doesn't have a, subst- a substantial or significant income, uh, I would say in the last year, for ordinary things you purchase in the supermarket, the inflation was 50 to 100 uh, percent. Some items doubled. You know, a bag of pretzels, which was 99 cents, is now a dollar 99. And some things went from uh, 50 cents to a dollar. Now, I'm, of course, significantly older than the both of you. I have no recollection at all ever in my lifetime of an inflation of this magnitude. Again, I'm not going to parse the statistics. I'm saying as a personal experience, I've never seen anything like this. So it did come as a surprise to me that people were, were able to look past that. And still vote in significant numbers for the Democratic Party candidates. And I can't explain that. So I'll be curious, you know, as uh, as we go forward, to look at the analyses, the exit polls on how it came to be that in an unprecedented historic in a generationally unprecedented inflation, the Democratic Party didn't go down to a huge defeat. Actually, it's an interesting point. Now, again, I don't know the exact numbers, so don't hold me to it. But I think if my memory is correct, Barack Obama did much worse in the 2010 midterm election than Biden.
1: Oh, much worse. Much worse. Much worse.
2: And I can't really explain that because I have no memory in 2010 of any catastrophic public event linked to the president that would have caused such a precipitous drop as happened for Obama. In fact, if you read Obama's memoir, he keeps saying, and so does David Axelrod in his memoir, that they had accomplished more in their first two years in office than any presidency uh, preceding them. So, of course, it was a kind of discordant note between saying you accomplished so much, but also acknowledging, as Axelrod did, that it was a complete catastrophe in the midterm elections. And so how it came to pass uh, that Obama fared worse than Biden when Biden was dealing with this out-of-control inflation is a perplexity to me.
1: Well, isn't the answer Donald Trump? Donald Trump wasn't around when Obama suffered all those defeats. I think he, I think Democrats lost more than 60 seats in that first midterm. Mm-hmm. And now you have Trump and just a lot of people revile Trump for understandable reasons. And he picked some horrible candidate this time. Uh, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. I mean, this I think was a pretty big factor. And also maybe people just don't feel strongly personally about Biden as they do other uh, political leaders like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, maybe Biden isn't as polarizing for non-Democrats as some of these prior yeah. Democratic leaders are.
2: We always have to look beyond our own tiny universe. I, I don't believe outside the woke liberal culture that Donald Trump was a significant factor in deciding the vote for people. Uh, the if you read the woke liberal, you know if you read their their papers or listen to their media, of course Donald Trump is an outsized factor, but I think for ordinary people who don't live in that you know, don't occupy that universe, I'm not convinced that that was a very big factor. Maybe in the case of Obama, it's possible. If you recall, the first two years there was of uh, his presidency. There was no improvement in the economy. It came later, and he was coming out of the Great Recession. So it's possible it was the disappointed expectations of people that caused that catastrophe right. in the midterm. But I still say, you know, speaking for myself, and I mentioned this because a lot of the calculations of inflation do not include things like grocery. Expenses, they don't include that. So I'm speaking from the point of view of a very ordinary person and the minimal uh, income. And I feel, you know, I, I the other day I said to myself, if I were the communist, I'd be voting Republican because this inflation is just getting under my skin now. So I am curious, what caused people to look past that? I
0: think that one of the things is that the Republicans. Kind of did what the Democrats usually do, which is that they, they kind of ran on not being as bad as the other guys, but they didn't really have any solutions for inflation.
2: Okay, mm. mm-hmm. that's possible. Axelrod was wrong. If you listen to him the past two days, uh David, for those of you who don't know, David Axelrod was the campaign strategist for the Obama uh, candidacy, and basically was behind the whole thing in terms of strategizing. He said that he predicted it would be very bad yesterday. And he said because the Democratic Party was doing very bad messaging on the economy. Well, it turned out he was wrong. It turned out he was wrong. Apparently, the messaging messaging wasn't as disastrous as I expected it to be. My general thoughts are there is a lot of discontent out there I find young people, because I do remain in contact with young people, either by teaching or by a very large correspondence with new people as well as former students. I I find young people very smart, uh, shrewd, not knowledgeable as I wish they would be when it comes to uh, history and facts, but still smart. And I think there's a real potential out there. But in order to uh, tap into that potential, there needs to be organization and there needs to be leadership. And those two things are seriously lacking. And I've spent a lot of time recently. Many people might think it's a waste of time. And sometimes I think it's a waste of time. I say I'm too uh, too old to be worried about the revolution. I should be... (laughs) Somebody called me up yesterday and promised me free funeral and cremation expenses. And
0: I hope <laughs> this isn't someone you know.
2: No, you know, it was one of those random calls. and I, 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 It was very sobering, even though was, I, I insisted that it was premature. But I have sat down in recent weeks and probably from the foreseeable future. Uh, I've been rereading the classics of the socialist or Marxist tradition, uh, people like Trotsky and uh, people like Rosa Luxembourg. If you're interested, you, you really should look. There's uh, several volumes that have just been published by Verso of Rosa Luxembourg's political writings, her economic writings and her political writings. She was an absolutely astonishing historical figure, a total enigma. It's like she dropped from Mars. She was a Polish, Jewish, middle-class, female cripple, and she became the leader of the far left of the German working class. A leader of the far left of the German working class. And they used to call her Red Rosa. And the leaders of the party, like August Babel, he once commented, every time I hear Rosa speak, I look down at my feet to see whether they're wading in blood. And I was reading her speech, her writings the other day. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, there's a romantic vision of Rosa and I've been caught up in that romantic vision. Uh, and, but then I start to read it and she was very tough. I mean, she's tough, hard-nosed as any man. And, but she's also hugely insightful about the whole question of how do you organize people? How do you organize? If you call yourself, they call themselves back then the social democrat. You know, we don't use that expression anymore. You could say a socialist, the a communist, the Marxist, whatever you want to call it. But what is the nature, if you are a radical person supporting the working class, how are you supposed to organize? Now, I'll tell you something. I was absolutely riveted I sat in my chair, I have my night chair. I sat in it for hours. I was exhilarated. And I was constantly comparing it to what happened during the George Floyd demonstrations, what happened with the so-called squad and Bernie when it came to Ukraine. And I, I felt I learned so much reading it. Like for, you may recall, you won't recall because it's not your generation. But Rosa Luxemburg was famous for her statement. In August 4, 1914, the German Social Democratic Party, of which she was a member, they voted for war credits to the German government to begin World War I. So they voted basically what Bernie and the squad did voted to give money to the government to fight a war which, as communists, they opposed. It was an imperialist war. They're not taking sides and so forth. And she famously said, on August 4, 1914, German social democracy turned into a rotting corpse. If you are in front of your Google, just put up uh, Rosa Luxemburg, rotting corpse, corpse, 1914, it was a famous line by her, which all of my generation of leftists, we all knew it. And I thought to myself, you know what? The day the squad and Bernie voted for war credits for the Ukraine, that whole enterprise pool, you know, the progressive, turned into a rotting corpse. And the whole job of leftists, as they understood it back then, the whole job of the left, uh, if you're a member of a political party, is to constantly point out the conflict of interest, what they call contradictions, but we can leave that aside the conflict of interest between the ruling elite, the capitalist class, and yourself. To constantly point out their interests are not your interests. Their interests are not your interests. Don't be fooled and for them the hallmark of what you call class consciousness the hallmark of class consciousness was seeing that fundamental conflict and cleavage between you your class your interests and the ruling class now let me be clear that's exactly what Bernie did he knew he internalized It was in his bone and in his blood that tradition. And that's why day in and day out and day in and day out in both of his campaigns, he kept talking about there are a bunch of crooks. There are a bunch of crooks. Big Pharma, bunch of crooks. And he did exactly what an old time socialist would have done class consciousness, their interests. not your interest he kept going on television could you imagine if you were in goldman sachs and you heard this guy on national television saying goldman sachs a bunch of crooks he did exactly what he was supposed to do but then what happened when it came to the foreign policy all of a sudden the bunch of crooks became a band of angels the bunch of crooks metamorphosed into a band of angels, you're telling me the same people who are cheating you day in and day out, stealing your wealth, stealing your labor, the same people are suddenly heartbroken by what's happening to the Ukrainian people? Are you telling me that? They're suddenly so concerned about the Ukrainian people? That guy Cirignani, is that how you pronounce his name?
1: Joe Cirignani, yeah.
2: Cirignani, yeah. C- C- R- yeah. He suddenly cared about cares about five hundred children who were quote unquote kidnapped. There are one million children, one million children who are in a concentration camp in Gaza, and have been there for fifteen years, and no concern about them, but five hundred children in the Ukraine. So to me, when I read them, when I read Rosa or I read Trotsky, who I've also uh, spent a lot of time rereading, all this is from my youth and I'm revisiting it on the verge of my death, naturally. Um, the The same people you're suddenly telling me, it's such a betrayal. It's such a betrayal of everything Bernie stood for domestically to now suddenly sell these people. Sell these people as concerned about the fate of the people of Ukraine? Can anyone possibly believe that? Nancy Pelosi? Did you read Obama's tweet? We should vote for Democrats who look like us and represent us. Oh yeah. Nancy Pelosi, yes. I live in exactly the same house on the on the East Coast that she lives on in the West Coast. I hang out with exactly the same people. Yes, that's my community. I recognize it. I recognize it. She spent more on her facelifts than I have earned in my entire life. That's a fact. And I'll show you my social security. You know, if you get uh, a certain point, they give you all your earnings for every day since you began work. And you total it. And I can assure you not get so much. But if you total it, you won't get the same total as her facelift. And you're telling me these are the people that look like me? Mama Mama Bear? Mama Bear? Has anybody yet? Has anybody yet put forth any explanation why in the midst of a conflict in the Ukraine, Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan? What was the point? What was the point? Except to stir up trouble. Except to stir up more trouble, as if our our planet doesn't have enough trouble. To stir up a war with China, and for them to say nothing, nothing, not one word, not even Bernie saying, "Nancy, I really, I really, uh, I'm really a little perplexed here. Why did you go to Why did you go to Taiwan? What prompted you to go to Taiwan? Nothing. Complete betrayal of that whole tradition. And in my opinion. It is worth studying that past because it gives you a, a clearer, I won't say a clearer, a, clear, a clearer sense of what it means to be a leftist, what it means to be a radical, what it means to be somebody who claims to be uh, fighting on behalf of the working class and for all of our futures, not just the working class. So for me, it's been uh, very valuable uh, to revisit that uh um, moment in my past but now revisiting it with a new context a new context because what's called the left has just gone off the rails it's gone off the rails
1: well norman uh, i'm curious um to hear your thoughts on the latest with jeremy corbyn because he is a sharp contrast to bernie sanders and the squad so like them at home solid progressive politics but he's also an internationalist and very consistent in applying the same progressive principles abroad as he does at home. And because of that, he was sabotaged uh, by members of his own party with a whole series of fake scandals, including this allegation that he was presiding over an anti-Semitism crisis inside his own party. And recently, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there was a documentary on Al Jazeera uh, based on leaked files from inside the Labour Party, just showing... (laughs) some window into how the scam was perpetrated, where basically allegations of anti-Semitism were either fabricated or inflated to deliberately bring down Corbyn?
2: Well, I was very involved at the time of the anti-Semitism orchestration against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I knew, uh, I don't want to name them, but I knew key people inside the, the Corbyn campaign and I was interviewed several times on you know, reasonably uh, mainstream programs. Well, I can't say mainstream, but programs which had a broad reach. And I made, I kept saying, "Don't apologize. Don't apologize." There's no evidence that the Labour Party was harboring or encouraging or uh, turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. It was not true. I said, "Don't apologize," because it's not about anti-Semitism. It's about Israel. So don't apologize because they are not going to stop until you are removed. They are not going to stop until you are removed. Now, I want to be clear about the facts because I don't want to uh, mislead your listeners, not just to protect myself, which is an issue, which is a consideration, but the more important consideration is not to mislead uh those who are listening to you. Number one, the campaign started with the organized Jewish community going after Jeremy Corbyn. And it was clear, as I said, it had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, which was just completely fabricated. I have read many studies. There are many good books on the subject right now. Uh, including one that was published by Verso. There are many good books on the subject. So you'll, uh, for arguments, not for argument's sake, but for the purposes of this program, we'll just set aside the evidence. Those who want it, I can certainly point to it. There was no evidence of anti Semitism. It was all about Israel. However, however, the Jewish community then became the tip of the juggernaut because It wasn't only the Jewish community that wanted to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. He had a radical domestic and foreign policy. So they then, the entire British elite, the entire British elite, from BBC to Sky News, from the Daily Mirror to The Guardian, the entire British elite unified behind this anti-semitism allegation because they decide to run with it as a way to drive Jeremy Corbyn from office. That being said, namely, it really wasn't even, it wasn't about anti-semitism, not just for the Jewish elite, for everybody used it. Those who didn't give a wit one way or another about anti-semitism, they realized this is something you can run with. And so, you know the the Guardian was completely despicable. I would add, and I know alienate people. Uh, Mehdi Hassan was despicable. He joined in with Jonathan Friedland, who yeah. began, who began, who began the whole campaign against the Labour Party. He initiated it, Jonathan Friedland. He put out a joint letter condemning bigotry, including in the Labour Party, which was a flat-out lie. In any event. However, we have to be careful about the facts. Even though they all ran with the anti-Semitism, it was not, and I want to be clear about that. It was not the anti-Semitism that defeated uh, Jeremy that charged defeated Jeremy Corbyn, but defeated was the Brexit, where half of his party was for Brexit and half of the party was against it. It was a calculation by the thugs in the Labor Party leadership that if you can split the Labor Party on Brexit, they were going to lose. Because there had been a vote, the people voted out, and you had to respect their vote. Right. And they knew that if the Labor Party came out against Brexit, they would lose the election. So if you look at all the polling, I studied it pretty closely. I followed it co- closely. All the polling showed that the anti-Semitism charge was not a significant charge, except in one sense, except in one sense, that Corbyn revealed himself to be a weak leader. He didn't have backbone. He didn't say we have a procedure to handle charges of anti-Semitism. If you have an allegation, send it to our complaints department and we will just handle the complaint, we'll address it. He just kept on retreating and retreating and retreating and retreating and he ended up looking pathetic. And that was one of the, uh, that was a contributing factor, but the main factor was Brexit you know, we don't want to, uh, when Jews deserve to be attacked, I will attack Jews. And Jews cause a problem like I thought Ronald Lauder caused a very big problem in New York State. I don't think the former head of the World Jewish Congress and a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, giving this guy Zeldin uh, 11, uh, $11 million, at least $11 million, uh, I, I, I consider that a problem. I consider that a problem. And I don't have a problem if somebody says, I think it's a problem that a Jew who has such loyalty to Israel is giving, uh, and the former head of the World Jewish Congress, is basically determining the election. Now, that was not what I was saying. That was the New York Times was saying. The New York Times said he's going to buy the election. But the New York Times left out the Jewish part. They had one sentence uh, about the Jewish part. So when there is a Jewish malfeasance, I'm very happy to acknowledge it and point to it and not try to... Uh, euphemize it, but that's not what happened in um, the UK. The interesting thing about the UK, in my opinion, was I said it at the time. This is really a dress rehearsal for what they're going to do to Bernie. yep, but he never got that far because his uh, presidential bid was uh, sabotaged uh, much earlier. Uh,
1: well, there was the Bernie Bro allegation. This there, were, this there were many allegations. Idea that there was a toxic. Uh, right. Culture, sexist culture inside yeah. of the Bernie movement.
2: There were many allegations. If you remember, Gloria Steinem, yeah, she said the women only support Bernie because they wouldn't meet the boys. In the uh, there, the was, boys there was the, there was the Bernie Bros. But up until that point, and we have to say it was an early point when he was knocked out. Uh, up until that point, the anti-Semitism in his ranks charge. Uh, Hadn't loomed large. But it's, in my opinion. He would have
0: been called the self loathing Jew, right? As opposed to an anti Semite.
2: Yeah, it's also true, as you now mentioned, he would have had the uh, protection of being Jewish and being in his gestures and his mannerisms being manifestly Brooklyn Jewish, whether it would have saved him or not, because the charges would, of course, have been about anti Semites in his ranks.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, originally with Corbyn, originally. It then escalated, but originally they didn't claim Corbyn was an anti-Semite. They claimed that he was harboring, pampering, turning the blind eye to all these anti-Semites who had joined the Labour Party. I think Corbyn, uh, I think Sanders would have uh, come out. I don't know how he would have fared because Sanders is kind of like Jeremy Corbyn. I don't want to say this as a... A negative necessarily, but he doesn't have the backbone to fight against friends, against yeah. colleagues. Uh, it's not in him. Now, in a way, it's a compliment to him. And it was the same thing with Jeremy Corbyn, that they, they are, in some ways, you could say soft, but soft is not necessarily a um, liability in the human being. But it doesn't work very well in politics. Right. Uh, and so I don't know how Bernie would have fared. For me, the most telling moment in the Bernie campaign.
0: And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com.
1: All right, always great to hear from Norman Fickelstein. And again, his new book, comes out very soon is called I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. It's a great title
0: and very appropriate title. Very Norman-ish, very Normy. Yeah. Now there's more Norman. There's more Norman to see and listen to. And if you want to do that, you can do that at useful because Norman gets very spicy. His takes are very spicy. You're definitely going to want to do that. If you don't already subscribe then make sure you join at UsefulIdiots.substack.com. Also make sure you join for our Thursday Throwdown. You're not going to want to miss that either. And don't forget, guys, very exciting news. We are going to be doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show. That's right, guys. Live taping of the Katie Halper Show, Tuesday, November 15th at the People's Forum. I'll be talking to Miko Pellet. He is an Israeli-American activist, a one-state solution advocate. He'll be talking about the Israeli elections. And he'll also be talking about his book, The General Son, which is about uh, being raised by a decorated Israeli general growing up a proud Zionist and then becoming an anti-Zionist and an advocate for the one state solution. So come on out. It's free. November 15th, Tuesday, November 15th. Doors open at 630. Live taping starts at 7 p.m. at the People's Forum. That's 320 West 37th Street. See you there.
1: All right, everybody. We'll see you next week.
0: See you next week hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on youtube at youtube.com slash useful idiots for clips live streams and full episodes also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast follow us on twitter at useful Idiot pod and use the hashtag useful idiots pod join us mondays at 10 a.m for the useful idiots monday morning show where we discuss the sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them